You're listening to the Winter Hughes Podcast with Joe and Eric Hughes. And now, here's the Hughes Brothers. Welcome into the Winter Hughes Podcast, a Bay Area sports podcast hosted by me, Joe Hughes, alongside my brother, Eric Hughes. And we have got a heavy focus on the Oakland A's. And Rick, an interesting move for the A's this week. The trade deadline has come and gone. And we knew the A's were trying to move on a lot of the veterans on this team and try to clear more roster spots as they're leaning very heavily into this youth movement. After the trade deadline has come and gone, we've seen the A's stay committed to that youth movement with some of the veterans that they were not able to get rid of, essentially, ahead of the trade deadline. And on Saturday, uh, before the game against the Giants, the A's brought back Estuary Ruiz. He came off the injured list. And to clear a roster spot, they kind of surprised everyone, designating Ramon Laureano for assignment. Ramon, a longtime veteran, a fan favorite for a lot of good reasons, but he has struggled over the last two years. So just when you got that news alert that Ramon Laureano was being DFA'd, given the context of everything that's going on, were you surprised? Did it make sense to you, kind of given where the A's are right now? Or what were your reactions to finding out Ramon Laureano was not going to be a member of the A's for the rest of this season or going forward? I was a little surprised at first. You know, as you said, Ramon is a, a fan favorite, knowing that they still do need some veterans there, right? I guess the other side of that coin is since Ramon got in trouble for those PEDs, he's kind of been a shade of his former self. I've talked to more than a few people that said the biggest thing when it comes to PEDs and coming back is your confidence. And if that's the case or not, he just never seemed to really get that confidence back. It's not that same caliber player that we saw there. There still is a veteran player with just a cannon. I know he said that he kind of looked at it as a favor for the A's. So, you know, there's a good chance he could go to a contender and, you know, maybe be one of those defensive replacements late in a game where, you know, you, you need a guy out in the outfield where... You know, there's runners in scoring position and you need to keep it close. So we'll we'll see what happens with them. I was a little surprised initially. The more that I thought about it, the the less shocked that I was. He's a big name. He's a carryover from the A's last playoff teams. And when we saw him on, you saw a guy that was a five-tool player in the heart of, you know, when the A's were good, he was right in the heart of all that action. But you're right. I've got the numbers here. Since 2022, when he came back from that 80-game PED suspension, He's hitting just 212 with a 285 on base and a 371 slugging percentage. He has dealt with some injuries, including twice this season. A little bit of a caveat with all of this is that there are injuries involved, but a bit of a downer for a guy that was a big fan favorite for a lot of years because he did feel like found money. And it also came at the expense of the Houston Astros, who were in a roster crunch of their own at the time. They had to let go of a guy who was very talented, and the A's wound up being the benefactor of that roster crunch and getting a guy onto their team that they might not have had available otherwise, giving Ramon a chance to play and show what he could do. And then we've got to see some of the best throws we've ever seen from his cannon. You know, like, it's Ramon Laureano, Yoan Cespedes, as far as outfield cannons over the last 20 years in A's history. <laughs> Who's do you like better? I mean... I think my favorite are the throws he doesn't have to make because his reputation was so solidified that you would see third base coaches running up there and putting the stop sign up. And guys are like looking back like, what? I could try to go. I could try to take that extra 90 feet. And they're like, no, no, no. 
Ramon had the ball. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, you're, it may, makes sense. You're right. You remember when he first came in and uh, guys would test him and they you were just like, well, Correct. obviously they haven't read the scouting report. Like, like you should not have done that. Didn't you see the last three games, what he's done? No, it was just a rocket. It's definitely unfortunate what happened with the PEDs. Going back to kids, you know, he was definitely a favorite here at our house. And my oldest, who's 14, she's kind of at that age where, you know, someone comes up and they've done PEDs. And it's kind of shocking to hear that. And kind of the way you frame that person changes a little bit. So I know that happened with Frankie Montas. We got to meet him at a fan fest and she kind of rolled her eyes and was like, ugh. It happened again with Ramon, and it's just kind of been a little roller coaster. But we did talk about the Astros. They do have to say that is one of my favorite uh, memories of Ramon when he was ready to just take on the entire Astros <laughs> yeah. dugout. Um, the whole dugout. It really seemed yeah. like that coach was out of line. Um, who knows? Maybe uh, Ramon was on a little roid rage or something. Oh, we're we're dog. not going to know, on, right? We're not going to no, know, man. but still... It was a great memory just and and you know at that time he was just the heart of the team and in losing him for that fight was pretty bad too. He just was like the soul of that team and and he let his emotions run wild and definitely was a fan favorite. So uh best of luck to him. We'll see how it goes for him. It's fresh in our minds right now, but ultimately going on you're going to think about Ramon Laureano, the things you're going to remember, the throws, the power and just he was that little bit of extra that made me believe that that last iteration of teams with Chapman and Olsen maybe could have broken through because when you got down to that level, that tiertum of stardom is your next guy down from like that Olsen level, that Chapman level player is Ramon Laureano was that next tier down. And that's really high tier for the way that he was playing for the A's for those years. And that made me really just believe in the depth that the A's had, that this is one of the deeper teams that we've seen maybe since, you know, 2014, that 2012 to 2014 team. So the thing is, is like, he wasn't even a tier below, right? Like you mentioned, he has a five tool player and then he's been a shade of his former self since that suspension. So you do have to ask, you know, was he a really a five tool player? Or was he a 212 player that was getting a little help on the side? Like you said, you, you don't know and you don't know what it is. And there's injuries tied into it. And the injuries aren't PED related. I mean, you got a fractured hand sliding into a base. That's just an unfortunate thing that happens in baseball. So one of the things he was very candid about is when he came back, he talked about his confidence. And we've talked about that a lot with Brent Rooker and these guys. You know, they seem like they're the most confident people in the world when you see them out there. But they deal with the same level of anxieties and personal stress about keeping their job. We hear these big deals get announced where a guy signs a five-year or seven-year deal for $180 million. That is a small percentage of the people that make up Major League Baseball. Most of these guys are trying to make it through the first three years just so they can get to arbitration and start making some substantial amount of money, let alone get onto that big tier kind of money that you know really dominates the headlines. But you, know, you look at that A's roster there's not a lot of guys making that much money. The highest paid player on the team this year was Trevor May, making $7 million. A very good amount of money by general population and even by MLB standards. But after that, there was not a lot of people that were world beaters. And just think, that's a whole big league roster. Spread that out amongst major league teams. Each team is going to have, outside of the Yankees and Dodgers, maybe a handful of guys making really good money. And then the rest of it is a bunch of guys that don't know if they're going to be in the league next year. Ramon Laureano came up kind of in that situation, established himself as that everyday player, 
And then you get rocked with this PED suspension. And then he came back and like you're casting doubts about what kind of player he was. He had those doubts himself as far as he candidly talked about, you know, believing that you could be that and having that trust in your teammates and in your locker room, especially when the guys that you know and trust in that locker room are leaving, getting traded out when you need them the most. The other side is, you know, you're you're also trying to get a contract to set up the livelihood for you and your family. And when you are battling in a league, it is kind of rampant where you are. You do see big name players like look at Fernando Tatis. This does happen. I know it's gotten to the point with steroids where Congress investigated. I'm not going to get on like a soapbox about this when like, hey, this is Oh, no, you only get on your soapbox for a let Tia. Thank you. And so, uh, and I'll get there later. But you did kind of bring up a spot about anxiety, and I'm going to switch it a little bit here uh, because the A's just played the Giants on Saturday. Trevor May, uh, somebody who has battled anxiety, come out and tried to destigmatize some of those things. And I know I, I haven't really been a big Trevor May fan. And a lot of the saves I watch him get, he's like red in the face. He's sweating bullets. The Saturday save against the Giants in a one-run game, I have never seen him look more calm, cool, and collect. And it was just like, no wonder, like, th- this is the guy you wanted. He was just dominant. And when I saw him come in in a one-run game, the Trevor May that I typically see, I was like, well, this is over. Like, the Giants are going to win. It capped off a-, a great little Giants game there. Paul Blackburn was dominant, cruising. He had a great at-bat against Crawford that got kind of stretched out. And Dallas Braden kind of called it, and he said, Whichever way this goes, it's going to take the momentum. Like if Crawford gets this, it's just going to drain Blackburn's energy bar. If Blackburn gets this strike out here, it's just going to be like, let's go. And he was cruising. It was a great little game there. Really great to see Trevor May, the the Trevor May that I think Oakland expected to sign when they brought him in. That's a nice little bookend for you because where you really soured on Trevor May was the preseason game against the Giants when he was wearing the black cleats. Mm-hmm. And you really kind of had that arrested development where he like kind of stuck in you for the whole season. And then he did struggle, obviously, which just kind of further cemented, you know, a little bit of a, a bias that you had against him. And then for that to come against the Giants later on with white cleats. And then to have that turnaround for you, that's you know, and, nice. and the other thing about it is like Langoliers yesterday is wearing like forest green cleats. So it's just like you can't <laughs> even yeah. tell the difference. Someone, uh, uh, Estuary Ruiz has like neon green. And then you're like, no one's wearing white anymore, you know, but the black yeah. just didn't fit, you know, and like <laughs> that, yeah, I couldn't give them a pass for that. Really good to see the A's come out, play some competitive baseball against the Giants. Got to see the protest going again in full effect. Uh, the fifth mm-hmm. inning got going again. Um, that even happened in the Dodgers in L.A. Really good to see the A's coming out. Big problem, though, in the last five games, they've scored seven runs. Solo homer. They're, they're, they're very dependent on the solo homer. Yeah, right now, which is, I agree with you, is an issue. And, you know, that's part of the learning curve with these young lineups, as you mentioned. The A's do value having some of the veterans in there to help balance that out because you don't want each guy up there treating each at bat like it's just, you know, put two cheeks into it and swing for the fences. But there are guys in that lineup that that's kind of their job. You know, that's Jordan Diaz. We've seen a guy that can hit for power to all fields and really looks like a guy that is starting to find his rhythm in the big leagues after a couple opportunities where he's come up, come back down, and now he's getting an extended chance at third base. Most likely, it's going to be at third base. He's played a little first, he's played a little second, but with the Jace Peterson trade, 
that was kind of the A signaling like, hey, we're opening up this spot. This is going to be Jordan Diaz time to make a run out of it. Even with the Ramon Laureano move that we've been talking about, that's a signal that the A's are committed maybe for the first time in a while to this youth movement and going all in because we don't ever see the A's in the last 20 years go to that full rebuild mode. They've always had veterans around. You think about the guys that they've signed through the years, even like a guy like Trevor Plouffe is a great example. And they signed Trevor Plouffe before, you know, to be a stopgap. Brandon Inge was another guy that they would bring in. They always like having veterans before they would kind of like, you know, let go of the leash and say, you know what, run free. This is your job. We even saw that this year. They brought in Jesus Aguilar to play first base. And then Ryan Noda took that opportunity, took that job and solidified himself. That's the example of what the A's want to see. And they want to see these veterans kind of moved out of the way because somebody's really pushing for an opportunity. And Jordan Diaz is the guy that's doing that at third base right now. So when you're looking around at this young A's team as they lean into that, who are the guys that you are really looking forward to taking advantage of an opportunity? And where do you see the A's maybe thinking like, okay, well, we've given this guy some run, but you know what? We're going to have to start looking at, you know, third base a little bit more, shortstop a little bit more, maybe left field is an area we have to look at. I guess kind of to answer that, I've got a question for you too. And it, it it's like, who is the one that's being moved up for Loreano to get moved out? A little bit of that, I've seen like J.J. Blade. I, I know that coming out, he was a, a really high prospect, a really high draft pick. And he had a great little double play yesterday uh, in the Giants game where he came in with that sliding, sliding catch, catch, got up spinning and fired to first. You need consistency. And, and that's the big difference, right? And that's what Rooker had at the beginning of the year that set him apart from J.J. Blade was having that consistency, right? And then when it fell off, it really fell off. It's just about coming up being consistent. Esteyuri Ruiz, as somebody who has consistently been a threat when rudders are in scoring position, right? And I think he's a league leader, top five, I think, in batting average with runners in scoring position. And we were saying like, oh, you kind of had the Ruiz special where like, hey, someone's on second, I'm going to double down the line, you know? So he's been really consistent at that. And that's, I think, what really helps set apart and solidify those chances there. Still, it's a lead Diaz that the only benefit that I see is that like yep. pinch hitting a seven for 14. Yep. Let's keep him as our pinch hitter. Like, yeah. I don't know what else to do. I think you're right. I mean, that's where it's going to be. I mean, Ruiz is the guy that they cleared the roster spot for because for anybody who doesn't know, you've got the 25 man roster, you've got the 40 man roster, and you've got to have space. You can't be on the 25 man roster without being on the 40 man roster. So, those are players that are still in the minor leagues, maybe that are still on your 40 man roster. They had to clear room there to bring back Estuary Ruiz, who think of all the time that he's missed, Rick. Still the leading stolen base in the American League, Estuary Ruiz. He's only second to one other guy in baseball. That's how good. I mean, stolen bases has changed a lot, but it's still Ruiz far and beyond even benefiting from those rules is just so much different than what we've seen from other players. Uh, in the ability to steal a base. And he had a good test. He had that delayed steal against the Giants on Saturday's game against Patrick Bailey, one of the best in baseball in pop time, being able to get that ball out quickly. He's got a very strong arm. You know, I saw him throw out Ellie De La Cruz, one of the fastest runners in baseball when they had a series against the Reds. That's one of the evolutions that we've seen is it's not just trying that straight steal. It was a delayed steal where you kind of pretend you're taking that extra lead and then you go and you try and, you know, force that catcher to be like, oh, oh, oh. 
and he bought himself just an extra little half second to be able to get in there and steal that base. That's something that he's been learning on because you remember, he came in, stole every base that he could. Every time he got on base, he was running, he was going. Well, then teams started catching on to that and they were doing throwovers, they were doing delayed throwovers, you know, pitch outs and trying to catch him. Slowed him down a little bit. It really backs up what Shea Langelier said when they faced him in the minor leagues is he's a nightmare when he's on base because he makes you think about all these other things and he does what he's supposed to do. He distracts you. And I think that that's one of the steps that we want to see with Ruiz coming back. The next will be Ryan Noda getting healthy. He's got the fractured jaw where he can come back and get in those lineups. Now you're going to start looking at lineups that have Estuary Ruiz in there, Ryan Noda, Zach Geloff, Tyler Soderstrom, Jordan Diaz. You know, Nick Allen is a guy that's going to get some run. J.J. Blade, who you mentioned. Cody Thomas is going to be another guy that gets some run. And that's going to be what I want to watch every time I see that lineup. And I'm excited to see Luis Medina is another guy that we've seen make that kind of growth. Struggled when he came up and the A said, you know what? We're going to keep you in this rotation. We're going to let you give up some homers and struggle through those walks. And he's really paying off for the A's. Leading into this game against the Giants on uh, Sunday, he's 2-2 two and two with a 2.92 ERA. And hitters are hitting just 217 against him over their last seven games. I want to see more performances and opportunities given to those guys like Luis Mendina that maybe have that high upside to start moving this process along. And that's what I'm going to be watching for for the rest of the season because we obviously don't. It's not watching for some playoff push. Do we know like what's the soonest that A's could be like mathematically eliminated? Like could it be before September? Well, we'll look at, uh, let me see. I got the standings right here. They'd have to go uh, like, you know, 50 and 0 to make the. So could they get eliminated by August? Like this could be the month where it's all said. See if I can find that right now. They are 30 and a half games out. Yeah, we're not quite there, but yeah, you're right. We could be there by the end of the month. It's kind of mathematically done yeah, by August. It's, uh, it's potential. The one that still jumps out at me as I saw it the other day, it's it's leveled off, so it hasn't gotten as extreme as it was early in the season. A lot of this damage was done early in the year when the A's were losing all these games, you know, 11-1 and 10-1 and things like that. But still, the minus 273 run differential is... Staggering. You look yeah. up and down and you're seeing, okay, well, let's see how many teams. Okay, there's some teams in the minus. Let's see who's close to us. Nobody is close to us. I think the next nearest is minus 159. So we've given up a hundred more runs than the next closest team. Well, that's like you go to the Dodgers game, right? I think it was like seven to three in the night. The Dodgers decide they don't want to get their closer up because it's not a save. The A's kind of start making some noise and make a late rally. And so then uh, they get their closer up. But that's a 7-3 game where the A's had three solo home runs. And if that's the only way you're scoring, because you're not getting a lot of hits, you're not getting a lot of base runners, you're getting that one that comes right in the sweet spot, you're teeing off on it. What you're giving up, though, is way more than that. It goes back to the pitching not being solid. It goes back to a Ludmiss Diaz being a defensive liability. You know, that air so, catching uh, strays yeah. for no reason right now. But yeah, you're right. I mean, I, I get what you're saying. And then, you know, that's part of that learning curve because you watch some of these games. And I think that was the game that Ken Waldachuk started. And he looked fantastic for the first three, four innings of that game cruising along. And then the wheels came off the bus. And, yeah. and it was done. It was done. It looked like a, a Fujinami yeah. third inning, right? Like it just, I remember saying to my oldest, I was like, 
he's cruising right now. He had like, I, I don't know, it was like 50 or 60 pitches in the fourth. And I was like, he could make it to yeah. the eight. And he couldn't get I out. I think the, the one that I was impressed with watching him even struggle in that were the at-bats against Max Muncy. Max Muncy takes a lot of pitches. And what really impressed me was that Ken Waldachuk had a game plan that he was willing to walk Max Muncy on and not give in to, hey, you know what? This guy is battling it off. He's laying off some of my stuff. So it's a 3-2 count. I've got to come inside with a fastball, which is what Muncy wants you to do. He wants you to get frustrated that he's fouling these pitches off or he's taking these close pitches and he wants you to give in so that he gets a pitch that he can absolutely crush. And, you know, that's what he does. He's made a living out of that. Low average, lots of... Yeah, and what I've been really impressed with watching, maybe this is some of the influence of Paul Blackburn because we saw that in the start against the Giants and you mentioned it in the Crawford at bat, is if I'm going to get beat, I'm getting beat on my pitch. And if that means I'm throwing a 3-2 slider and it's going to duck out of the zone and you don't swing at it, well, you know what? Take your base, tip of the hat, as opposed to thinking like, you know what? I've got to throw a less movement on my slider just to get it in the zone, or I've got to give you that fastball. And that's a level of maturity that I've been watching with some of these young players. And you want to see guys that make that Luis Medina jump and actually learn those skills. That's what I'm going to be watching for Freddie Tarnock is another guy that's learning that skills for him. It's been a little bit of placement. It's like, you know, he gets he gets cruising along and then all of a sudden the third inning, maybe he's getting a little tired because he hasn't been stretched out and he grooves a fastball or, you know, a slider doesn't quite break the way that he wants it. It gets absolutely crushed. But those are the kind of developments and growth I'm watching for, even if the results still aren't there yet for a guy like Ken Waldachuk or Luis Medina or, you know, Freddie Tarnock. And that's what you saw with Blackburn yesterday, especially in that Crawford at bat. He was like, I'm going with that low breaking ball. And I don't know if it slipped or the release point, but it broke way too early. Crawford saw it. Crawford took it. And you think, you know, some of those other pitchers aren't going to have that confidence to go right back to that. They go like, that's my pitch. I've been hitting it. I missed it that time. It's a full count now. I'm throwing that again, Mm -hmm. but I'm going to go a little higher so it's in my spot. But you have to have that confidence and you have to have the ability too, right? Like like you're saying, you can have the confidence, but if you don't have that ability, it's not going to I think Dallas Braden talks about this a lot on the broadcast, especially with the young pitchers, is make it competitive. You do have pitches that you, for better or worse, you waste a little bit. Like if you get a guy in an 0-2 count, you don't want to see a breaking ball hung right in the middle of the strike zone. That's just devastating when you've got the advantage. And generally, guys try to throw a breaking ball that's not going to be something that the hitter can do anything with. It's going to be the pitch. If the guy is willing to be that aggressive, I'm going to you know throw a ball that he's not going to be able to do something with. But if it winds up three feet out of the strike zone outside, you're making his job really easy. You've got to still make those pitches competitive enough, even if it's not going to be something that a guy can try to handle or do something with, that he's got to think about it and he's got to react to it. And that's what you were talking about. It's like you still have to find the strike zone. You still have to make those pitches competitive. And it's not just, okay, it's 0-2, so here's a breaking ball that he's not going to touch. It's not just a waste of, of your own pitch and everyone's time, basically. And, the, you know, we're watching the next generation of A's players that are going to come up knocking on those doors and looking to take those jobs. Joey Estes, one of the A's top pitching prospects, just promoted to AAA. He's been doing very well in AA. But that promotion for him means that the next step is coming up to the big leagues. His next step for a guy like Joey Estes is to come and take 
Ken Waldachuk's job, to come take Hogan Harris's job, to come grab a spot in that A starting rotation when an opportunity becomes available. And when you get that chance, hopefully you get as long a leash as like a guy like Luis Mendina, because that has been a huge turnaround that the A's wanted to see. Mason Miller is a guy we we're going to see get that kind of opportunity. And each start was must-see TV with him because of the velocity and the strikeouts. And unfortunately, injuries are a part of baseball, and we hope that he can come back soon. But Freddie Tarnock is a guy I'm going to be watching. Estes is a guy I'm going to be watching. From the position player side, I'm watching, you know, I know you always say you're not a Naviators fan because it conflicts with your, you know, Martinez Sturgeon schedule. But, you know, I'm watching to see highlights for a guy like Lawrence Butler because I want to see, you know, that little preview of what's coming to Oakland next. And so, do you think that they're going to get that chance this Sturgeon? year? Is that Sturgeon? No, yeah. Uh, especially if the A's are eliminated in August. Do you think Butler comes up? Do Do you think uh, some of these other guys get a chance this year? Maybe. Part of that, it's going to be how things shake up on the roster because the A's are holding on to these roster spots and giving them to those younger guys when they can. And you know, the Ramon Laureano one is telling because the A's, I'm sure, were shopping him ahead of the trade deadline. But the fact that nobody was able to, you know, offer something enough that the A's were like, yeah, we're, we're basically giving this guy away. We'll take that. We'll take that 38-year-old single-A prospect, you know, whatever it is. But they weren't able to get a deal like that. And when push came to shove, the A's said, you know what? We've got to value the young guy getting that roster spot right now. So... When that happens, if they have a move they feel they can make, yeah, I think they will look at that. But otherwise, I think they're going to want what we've talked about with some of these young, other younger guys. You got to play every day. And if we don't have a spot for Lawrence Butler to come in and play every day and get that regular appearance like Zach Galoff is getting right now and like Tyler Soderstrom is getting right now, then no, the best place for you is going to be in AAA. But if they do have that opportunity, that's what's going to happen. And that's what we're we're glad to see for a guy like Jordan Diaz getting that opportunity right now. Can you see them creating that opportunity? Are there anybody else that you could see the A's potentially DFAing to clear? I think the most likely were the guys we, we saw with Manny Pena and we saw with Ramon Laureano. I mean, it it's going to be veterans that, like we talked about, they don't view as having value and value, I, I put in quotes, to the club in two ways. Either cheap and under club control for an extended period of time or veteran mentorship. And if those things line up, like Tony Kemp is a free agent after the season, but the A's valued having him around. And you can see why that series against the Dodgers, a great example when he went all out on that foul ball, didn't catch it, almost had one of the catches of the year. Mm -hmm. But the mentorship that he brings for those young guys, he's established relationships with these young guys. There was a video that they did in spring training where he took, I think it was Zach Galloff, took him suit shopping. And I think Lawrence Butler might have been the other guy. And they went shopping for suits. They want that kind of uh, guy around. Seth Brown is another guy like that who's a leader in this clubhouse. And even though he has some club control, he would kind of be in that boat that Ramon Laureano's in, except that they value his leadership and the, the platoon ability, especially with Ryan Noda out uh, to be able to play first base. But that's another guy that may be kind of on the cusp of that but has some value that the A's view. And other than that, I think the A's are, are starting to find out like, no, we're going to go with this young roster. Like you look at the lineup for, I think it's Sunday against the Giants and it's all young guys. It's young, 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 young. And like even the old guys are going to be guys like Brent Rooker, who is still a young guy or JJ Blade, who's still a young guy. But just the way this season's gone and how long it's been, it does feel like Esther Ruiz and Ryan Noda and like JJ Blade 
that they aren't these young guys anymore. They feel like they're veterans because they've gotten so much playing time. The grizzled vets. Yeah. So no, I guess what I'm, <laughs> and it just comes to my soapboxes, you know, because we've talked about this. It's <laughs> like, to me, a Ledmus Diaz, what is his value? Like we've talked about the mentorship. We've talked about the versatility and we've talked about redundancies. And I think you can check every single box for a Ledmus Diaz right there. And he's got a, a big league contract and that's, they view some value from a Ledmus Diaz that wasn't there this year. He's under contract through next season and he's going to be likely the highest paid player on the team which is you know staggering but I think that that's going to be what the A's are looking for is that they don't have an urgency right now maybe they do when they do have to create a roster spot when Ryan Noda comes back and if they don't have a guy that they feel they can send back down that's where you run into that issue but for right now his job is safe and I know he's not the most popular amongst A's fans for that exact same reason because you know he signed a deal that for all intents and purposes, it's not his fault that they offered him a good deal. He, he signed it. He took a job. He hasn't performed up to it. And I know why fans have turned on him, but he hasn't also been like a villain. We view him as a villain because he underperforms on the worst team in baseball and has sometimes been a bit of a block to some of these younger players that we'd rather see play. But again, that's not his decision. That's Mark Kotze and the A's decision about who's getting in there regularly Give Let Misty as a pass as far as the kind of know, person so that, and job that he is. You, you bring know. up a good point. Let's talk about that. How, what have you felt about Mark Kotze's decision-making as a manager, pitching changes he's making, lineup moves that he's making? And I know he's he's working with the tools that he has, but I, I've seen a lot of threads saying that they're not happy with the pitching choices he makes when he makes those uh, choices. What are your thoughts on Kotze as the manager? It's hard to judge based on what he's trying to let a guy do versus what's the move to help you win. And for Mark Kotze, super fiery guy, he does want to win all of these games. But it also becomes an opportunity watching a Ken Waldachuk in that Dodger series. I got to let this guy struggle a little bit and see if he can get through that and have that kind of breakthrough to see what it takes to get through that outing. And so some of it is giving a guy a little bit of a longer leash on a team that you know is not going to win and know is not going to go to the postseason versus the way you'd manage if somebody solidified themselves and you're trying to win that game. So for Mark Kotze, this is a lot of spinning plates. You know, you're trying to manage a lot of things and figure out what works best, especially the top prospect doesn't have a position right now. They want Tyler Soderstrom in there. You're trying to get him used to being in the big leagues just got his first extra base hit, got his first home run, trying to make sure that he doesn't lose confidence. But as much as we've talked about this with Zach Geloff getting run every day at second base, you're trying to get Tyler Soderstrom in there every day and you don't know where he's going to play. Some days he's going to be catching, some days he's going to be at first, some days he's going to be the DH. And while you're juggling that around, you've still got to fill out the rest of your lineup because not a lot of positions are solidified with everyday players right now. It's hard for me to separate manager Kotze from former fan favorite uh, mm-hmm. center fielder Mark Kotze. I've had a lot of interactions with Kotze at the A since he was even a, a, a base coach. And even he tossed a ball to one of my kids one time. So I really like how fiery he is, how passionate he is. Then it comes back to that other part of how long am I letting him try and figure out? And now am I damaging his confidence? And yeah. now is that going to affect him later on? So it's a delicate balance, man. It's it's a tough job for Kotze versus if he had a club that was established and was expected to go out there and win. 
So I think the what you watch were are the players developing and getting better, and you're watching for those little things like we talked about with Akin Waldachuk. Even though the results weren't there, is he growing in his confidence to continue to try to make his pitch and not give in to a guy? If he's getting beat with the spots and things like that, well, you can't control that. You know, you can only help a guy as much as he's got to take that job himself. You can only help him so much. You assume that every manager in MLB has the same job to win the title, but it's not true, right? Like, Okatsu's job is not to win the title, to develop these players and help them come along. Whereas Aaron Boone, you know, you would expect he is to maintain egos and and get through that and win the championship we'll see what he's able to do i i do like kotze i am a fan i have seen some threads questioning his decision making but you know at some point you're like i'm going piecemeal out here and trying to put it together what would you want him to do different like who do you want what we want yeah 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 but we're getting to see that now we're getting to see jordan diaz play third base every day so those are the things that make me more confident and comfortable with mark kotze This has been the Winner Hughes podcast, new episodes every Monday. Make sure to like and subscribe. You can find us on social media at Winner Hughes, or you can find me at Vegas Joe Hughes. We'll talk again next week. Thanks for listening to the Winner Hughes podcast. Make sure to like and subscribe.